Good morning. Cold air is coming. All right. You heard about that. <laughs> Hopefully we'll get to uh, experience it a little bit. Uh, I was talking with somebody else and it was so funny because I mentioned the cold weather and the first thing she said is, I bought stuff for soup. And the reason that's funny is that when we made our shopping list for this week, my wife said, we're having soup. So um, uh, anybody else already know that soup is on the menu? Yeah, we're, we're excited about this. Now, it's, it's funny for, for me, um, when I first got here, uh, People warned me about the heat, right? And, uh, and I had lived in Kansas City for five years. Uh, and Kansas City can be incredibly hot and humid. Uh, it's right in the middle, and that front is always just bouncing. So you get either the Canadian Arctic air or you get the warm air from the Gulf. And, uh, and we've had temperature fluctuations that in a few hours have gone 30 to 40 to 50 degrees. Uh, that's just that's just life in Kansas City, uh, but so I thought I knew I thought I knew what hot and humid was, um, and so I said, yeah, we kind of have an idea of it. And people looked at me like you are so ignorant. Uh, they didn't say it, but they said it with their eyes, uh, and uh, and sure enough, it's it's like two o'clock in the morning, and it's still ninety nine percent humidity. Uh, and I thought, I didn't know I needed a straw to breathe until I came here. Uh, but then people, you know, they, they would tell me, like, well, you know, it gets cold here, too. And then I gave them the same look because I grew up in Michigan. And I said, oh, you are so ignorant. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so it's, it was funny to us to see that the temperature would drop into the 70s. And we would see people bundle up. Uh, and we'd think, what's wrong with them? You know, finally, it is, it's finally nice to be outside. Uh, and, uh, and people say here, they, oh, I love the cold. I love the cold. And we'd ask, what temperature do you describe as cold? And uh, they said, you know, when it gets way down into like the 60s, I'm like, oh, that's not cold. Uh, no, no joke. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. Uh, I'm prone to hyperbole, but I'm not exaggerating. Um, when I was 18 years old, senior year in high school, we had a week long in West Michigan. Not, this is not the uh, feels like cold, this is actual cold. We had a week negative 30 or colder. Still had school. Still had school, which is proof there are crazy people in the world. All right. But uh, looking forward to the cold weather coming. Uh, and um, not not cold for here, weather coming, but uh, uh, I, I always call my dad in January and, and I say, you know, he answers the phone. I said, hey, you've been golfing lately? And uh, that's funny because there's three feet of snow on the ground when I call and do that. But uh, he calls in August and he gets his revenge. So it all it all works out. We have started last week our series through um, uh, through First Peter through First Peter. Uh, and uh, as we work our way through First Peter, we must constantly remember that this letter was written to encourage and instruct believers that conflict with their culture and are experiencing persecution as a result. While experiencing persecution, a believer can be encouraged when they understand their salvation. And that's what we looked at last week is, uh, as we begin looking at uh, at what will be our salvation. 
Uh, so we saw the promise last week that salvation is coming. Uh, our eternal life starts the moment we trust Christ um, for salvation, but all the benefits of salvation have not yet been experienced or have come to fruition. As we look to the future of our salvation, we can rejoice that our inheritance is guaranteed. It is guarded in heaven by the power of God. Last week, we considered the future of our salvation, which gives us, as 1 Peter says, a living hope. This week, we're going to consider our salvation in the present. And here is what we need to understand, is that our salvation is being in the present. It is being refined. Our salvation in the present is being refined. That's what we're going to look at this morning as, as we go through. But what we're going to do is, as you can see in the uh, bulletin notes, uh, it, it all has to do with a refined salvation and then gives the result. And, and if you're like me, you like filling in the little blanks. I leave that there so you can do that. Uh, but our salvation is being refined in the present. Our salvation is being refined. So we're going to look at just a few verses this morning uh, about our salvation in the present. What does a refined salvation do? A refined salvation causes joy. A refined salvation causes joy. Because our hope is in the certainty of the future, in the present, we rejoice. In verse 6, it says, In this you rejoice. And it's talking back about the future of our salvation, where, where all of the benefits will be fully realized where our inheritance is incorruptible. It is kept in heaven, guarded by none other than God himself. And he says, this thought causes us to rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. A refined salvation causes joy. So it says in this, we talked about that. That's the realities mentioned in verses 3 through 5 which is our inheritance is guaranteed. And what is our inheritance? Simply put, our inheritance is our salvation. That is our inheritance. We need to know all about our salvation. That knowledge needs to be put into action. And the result of understanding your salvation, we must feel joy. It is inappropriate to not be joyful even in difficult times. What does it mean to rejoice? Well, we have a pretty good understanding of that, but it's to experience a state of great joy and gladness, often involving, involving verbal expression and appropriate body movement. You should be able to see joy. A great question to ask sometimes when we look at things that might be a more conceptual is to ask the question, what does that look like? What does that look like? I've done that with a lot of different things, talking about change. What does change look like? Well, here, what does joy look like? I was speaking with, with a friend who I could tell has been going through a difficult time, and, uh, and I hadn't spoken with him in, in quite a while, but I'd seen him, and, uh, and he said, that he said, you know, I'm having, having some difficulty. And I said, I know. He said, I, we haven't spoken in a while, but I've seen you. I can tell on your face and your body movement that you've had some difficult, like you're going through a difficulty. I mean, you can see it. I said, you hit it well, but someone who knows you can see it. 
we shouldn't ever try to hide joy. We shouldn't try to hide joy. Uh, it should be seen in what we say, it can be heard, but it also should be seen with, with, how we, with how we carry ourselves. To be extremely joyful, to be overjoyed, to rejoice greatly. In Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, it says, I have set, let me go back here, there we go. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When we read that, it should not be read like, and my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That is not how this passage is intended to be read. Right? Not at all. Fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. In this psalm we have a prophecy concerning the resurrection of the future Messiah as well as to David himself. Uh, David is speaking of himself, but there's also a, prophet, uh, a prophetic message in this uh, that is pointed out in the New Testament. This is ultimately speaking about Christ. But believer, I have some good news for you. Your body will not stay in decay. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Uh, your body will not stay in decay. It will be brought back and then some. I'm not exactly sure what a glorified body will be. Um, it seems as though when, when Jesus was resurrected that, that they weren't expecting him, but at the same time he looked like Jesus. Um, so I'm not sure what my glorified body will look like, but it's, it's, I'm going to look like Chris. I'm, I'm hoping a younger, more handsome version of Chris. Uh, I'm, but, uh, but we'll look like Chris. I, I'm not exactly sure what my... I've never been glorified before. Uh, so I don't really know what it, what it looks like. Uh, but, uh, but I know that it's going to be, my glorified body is going to be better than this. Don't say that too loud. Don't say that too loud. No, no. I think he speaks for all of us when he says amen, right? Uh, absolutely. So, to be in the presence of God is the ultimate place to exist. There is no better place than the presence of God. There can be no greater joy than to be than to ex ever experienced than to be in his presence. Now, there is a reality of present trials. A long time ago, a Disney movie came out in 1960 based on a series of books written in the early 1900s uh, with the name Pollyanna. Uh, some of you might might remember that, that movie. I hated that movie. I hated that movie. Uh, and, and, and I hated it for all the wrong reasons. Uh, because Pollyanna was just too positive all the time. Right? 
She fell out of a tree, broke her legs, and seemed happy about it. Uh, but there's some truth there. There's some truth there. And, and, and here's the deal with that. Uh, so Pollyanna comes, and her, her unrelenting optimism changes uh, an embittered town and changes it. She does it with unrelenting cheerfulness and optimism. Uh, the important truth, though, that is expressed in this movie is joy can be expressed during grief. Joy can be expressed during grief. Uh, the believers in the first century, persecution was real. It was real. At the time of Peter's letter to the churches in northern Turkey, to turn to Christ caused real pain. Jewish believers would be kicked out of the synagogues. Their children would be kicked out of school. Friends and family would shun them, and businesses no longer would have connections with them for buying and selling. They took on the risk of being homeless and hungry. It was real. Gentile Christians risked just as much. They would no longer go to the pagan religious festivals, which were important for social relationships and business relationships. Uh, all of the, uh, the guilds had a, had a deity that they would worship. So if, if, they, if they worked with wood and were part of, of, of that guild, they would be kicked out of it if they didn't participate in the religious pagan practices that associated with that guild. If they worked, if they worked metal and they didn't give homage to the, the, the god or goddess of, of that craft, then they were no longer accepted and would lose business, lose customers, and people wouldn't sell them uh, raw products in which to do their trade. Persecution was real. They would take a severe financial hit and often lose the support of their family. Grief is real. Hardship is real. Trials are real. Persecution is real. But joy overcomes grief when we know the outcome of our salvation and reckon it to be true. It's an important part, that last part. Reckon it to be true. That means you put into practice what you know. You put into practice what you know. Uh, there's a, a story of a, a professor uh, who uh, had a class on applied physics. Uh, and, uh, and he said... How many of you know the law of, uh, of, I believe he said, the law of the roller coaster? If you ever go to an amusement park, the, the first hill is always the highest, right? There's a reason for that is because you can't go higher the next time. It always starts with the highest, and every hill after that has to be lower than the highest hill. Uh, that's just physics. And, uh, and he said, if I were to take this log, and he had a log on stage, uh, he said, if I were to take this log and, and sit you um, with your back against the wall and take this log on a rope uh, and put it to your chin uh, and then let it swing out, when it came back, would it hit your chin? And we know the answer is no. It won't. It absolutely, positively won't. We know that to be true. Reckoning it to be true is you sit on that chair and you watch the log go out and come back in. And they had a student who said, oh, I know it. And they sat him in the chair and they let the log go. 
and it started coming back, and he bailed, <laughs> right? And the professor said, do you really believe in the law of the roller coaster? Well, yeah, but he didn't reckon it to be true in the moment. So for us, we know salvation, but we have to put our knowledge of salvation into practice in our life. And that changes everything for our what we say uh, and our body language and what we communicate and our approach to life changes when we reckon it to be true. Here is the even more amazing part of expressed joy during hardships. Not only can we experience joy during hardships, but we can also express joy because of the hardship. It's not just overcoming the hardship that causes joy. It's also the experience of the hardship. Why? Well, a passage that's familiar to a lot of us in James 1, verses 2 through 4. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Trials bring about maturity. The pain doesn't feel good, but the result is desirable. Before I got married and then allowed my body to go, I enjoyed lifting weights. While lifting weights, your muscles are not getting stronger. That's not what lifting weights does. It does not strengthen your muscles. It weakens your muscles. It weakens them. Lifting weights destroys your muscles. But while you sleep, your body begins to rebuild itself stronger than it was before to be able to handle the increased workload. Our maturity as believers works the same way. Trials produce endurance and a dependence on God. Trials wear on you and make you tired and worn out. But when your faith, but when you rest in the Lord, you become stronger because of the difficulties. First Peter points out a slightly different advantage in suffering trials, and that is a refined salvation is real. A, defined, a refined salvation is real. In First Peter 1.7, says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials prove the reality of one's faith. A person's faith has been tested and has proven to be true. When a new type of aircraft gets approved, it has undergone hours of vigorous testing, then modifications, and then more testing. They beat the aircraft up to see if it can hold up. When you are a pilot that is experiencing trouble, you want to know what the aircraft can handle, that it can take a beating and be dependable. Trials do that for the believer. In 1 Peter, the trials serve to refine one's faith. You go through persecution and discover that your faith still holds. God is faithful. I still have my salvation secured in heaven 
by God himself. And you know that. You know it. It's been a tested faith. It's been proven. And because it has been tested and proven, a refined salvation is valuable. A refined salvation is valuable. Because persecution proves the genuineness of our faith, and we know that our faith can stand firm in difficult times, then our refined faith is incredibly valuable, more valuable than gold that is not imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Our salvation does not lose its luster. A refined salvation is more valuable than gold because gold can testify against you. It's an interesting verse uh, going back to James. Look at this in James 5.3. It says, Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Gold, even refined gold, it can last a while, but eventually it does corrode. And that corrosion is what? Is evidence of hoarding earthly wealth rather than investing in eternal pursuits. Refined gold can testify against you. What does a refined salvation do for you? Well, a refined salvation glorifies God. A refined salvation glories in God. A refined salvation results in the praise, glory, and honor to Christ. Refined gold will never do that. How does a refined salvation glorify God? God is glorified anytime he is made known, either in his character or his actions. So here's an interesting thought. God is equally glorified, equally glorified, when a believing sinner trusts in him and God's love, grace, and mercy is made known because of that salvation. God is equally glorified in that as he is when he condemns an unbelieving sinner to eternal punishment. Because then God's righteousness, justice, and holiness are made known. In each instance, God's glory is made known because his character is made known. So, when does this verse 8 say um, that Christ will be praised, glorified, and honored? It says that that will happen on the day that Christ will be revealed. There is coming a time when the whole world will know who Jesus Christ is. We know who Jesus is, but the world does not. Some think that Jesus was a good man. Others think he was a prophet. Did you know that Muslims believe that Jesus will be the prophet that judges at the end? A lot of Muslims know more than a lot of Christians. It's true. Even, even Muslims believe Jesus is a prophet. Some think Jesus was a fraud. Some doubt whether he ever really existed at all. But the day is coming when it says, By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. 
that day is coming. And for us, we need to know that Jesus is Lord. When Christ returns to set up his promised kingdom, guess who gets to be with him? It's us. We get to be with him. In Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, uh, it's a longer, longer section, but it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped with blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When Christ presents himself and the whole world knows that he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, you will be glad that your genuine faith has been tested and refined. God's love will be shown in your salvation. You will be following the one called faithful and true, and you will not be doing so because you have always been perfect, but because he that is faithful and true has perfected you. And he did so by using trials and persecution along the way. The whole world will know that Jesus is the one who saved you. Jesus is the one who forgave you. Jesus is the one who perfected you. And saving you, God's character is made known to all the world. His righteousness is shown in that sin must be paid for by death. His love is made known in that the Father sent the Son to die in our place and to be the Savior of the world. We can praise God for a genuine tested faith done so by trials and persecution. I mean, when we think about it, that makes sense, doesn't it? By what means did salvation become available to all people? Through the persecution of Jesus Christ, correct? What did that accomplish? It made righteousness available. And those who, by faith, trust Christ for that salvation will be saved. God has always used trials. And God uses them for our benefit, to refine our salvation. Praise God for the trials that come. A refined salvation lives in faith. A refined salvation lives in faith. In verses 8 and 9 of 1 Peter, the, uh, the song that started last week, the hymn that, that Peter either, either knew and, and was using it in this writing or, or led by the Holy Spirit to, to write, to write the, the hymn that uh, we started at last week, this is, how, this is how it ends. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible 
and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter and the other apostles saw Christ. They lived with him for three years. They saw the miracles. They heard the teachings. They saw him die and rise from the grave. They saw him ascend into heaven. We have not. I think the apostles were always amazed when people who did not see what they saw concerning Christ, that did not have the same experiences that the apostles had, I think they were amazed when people who did not see would trust Christ for salvation. Jesus said as much to the disciples after his resurrection, before his ascension. In John 20, it says, eight days later, his disciples were inside again. This is after Jesus' resurrection. And Thomas, who wasn't there the first time that Jesus presented himself to them, uh, Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it on my side where the spear had gone in. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? And the answer was, yes. And then Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. I think it, it amazed, I don't want to say amazed Jesus because that would suggest that he isn't all-knowing or sovereign, uh, but, uh, but it, amazed, it certainly amazed the, the disciples that anybody who hadn't seen what they saw, but just from their testimony, by faith would accept the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins and rose again, proving that death had been conquered, it had to amaze them. It's almost as though it was a work of God. <laughs> Two amazing statements in uh, 1 Peter 1, verses 8 through 9. Even though we have, not, we have never seen Jesus, we love him. Why? Because we have experienced his love for us. Jesus said, you love me because I loved you first. And when you have experienced the love of Christ, you love him back, even though you have never seen him. Even though we do not currently see Jesus, we have put our trust in him to save us from our sin. And what is the outcome of that? What is the outcome of of trusting him and what he did to save us from our sins, rather than trusting works that we would do ourselves, rather than trusting uh, the church giving grace if we meet certain specifications. Um, grace doesn't come from the church. Where does grace come from? Grace comes from, from Christ. Grace comes from God. Uh, and when we trust Christ, what is the outcome of that? The salvation of our souls the salvation of our souls. Where did we get our soul? It says that when God was forming Adam, he breathed into him the breath of life. And when we die, what happens? Our body and our soul are separated. God takes his breath back. God says, I'm going to hold that for a little while. And then when we become glorified uh, when, when we 
when we experience that, Christ puts a new body and he connects it back with that breath of his and we have a soul. And it's the salvation of that soul. There's very little things that we have that we, that we will have forever. Correct? But God has secured our soul and will reconnect it to a glorified body. And it will be with him forever, for eternity. Wow. That's great, isn't it? That's enough to make you say, I can handle this trial, Lord. Through your power, through, you know, th- through your leading, through your spirit, I don't like it, but it is having a work in my life and my salvation is secure. The outcome of that faith is the salvation of our souls. Believers can rejoice because they are receiving, to receive as a reward, what was promised, namely salvation. Receiving. I, sorry, I wasn't an English teacher for a little while. Is that past, present, or future? That's in the perfect present. It means it's an ongoing occurrence. We are receiving our salvation in the present. For those who love and believe in Jesus Christ, salvation is past. If you look back at verse 3, it says he has given us new birth. So we have the past, we have the present. And in verse 5, it says, through faith are shielded by God's power. And the future is that it is their inheritance, which will be revealed in the last time. We are receiving salvation. We've received salvation in the past. We are receiving it in the present and we will receive it in the future. A refined salvation accomplishes so much. Since each day brings believer closer to that final day, they are now receiving it. All of this in spite of persecution, which deepens and demonstrates one's faith, is certainly cause for inexpressible and glorious joy. I am not a prophet, but I'm going to make a statement. This week, you're going to experience, at varying levels, a trial of some kind, a difficulty of some kind. I'm not a prophet. That's, that's like saying the sun is going to rise in the east tomorrow. You can check me on that. It, it, it will. I'm, I'm feeling confident about that. Why? Because life is trials, right? When that trial comes to varying degrees. Some of it, it'll just maybe bother us for a minute. Others could be life-changing. I don't know which it's going to be. But when that trial comes, what are your thoughts going to be about that trial? Are you going to say, this is an opportunity for growth? This trial is going to prove the genuineness of the faith given to me by God. This trial is going to pale in comparison to the glories that are yet to come. Are you going to say, thank you, God, for this opportunity to grow in endurance and to become more like your son because of it? When people see you, are they going to look on your face and say, well, something horrible happened? Or are they going to look on your face and say, something horrible happened, And yet there's a peace that passes all understanding. There's a joy here that I don't understand. Years ago, before I I was married even, um, my my mom passed away. She had uh, ALS uh, and had it for for about five years. 
uh, and uh, and it took a toll. All right, it took a toll. My <clears throat> excuse me, my dad's side of the family, uh, mostly unsaved people, and they came to the funeral. And my mom had a few requests about her funeral. One of those things is absolutely, positively, no sad funeral music. She said, it better be happy. It better be joyful. And, uh, and, and boy, was it. Um, we had, uh, at the church at that time, we had a, a piano player and an organ player. Uh, the piano player didn't read music at all. You didn't put a sheet of music in front of her. It meant nothing to her. Um, but she was in, as she called, a boogie-woogie band back in the, in the 30s. And then she got saved and she said, I prayed. I said, God, now what am I supposed to do with my boogie-woogie? <laughs> and she played it at church. Every hymn had a boogie-woogie feel to it. The uh, organ player, uh, he played uh, at the roller rink. You put those two together, and there was no sad funeral music. It was a celebration. And after the service, the dad side of my family came, and they said, we have never experienced a funeral like this before. And my dad said, well, when you know Christ as your savior, something along these lines, when you know Christ as your savior, it changes everything. Doesn't it? Then let it be shown in our life. Let it be shown on our face. Let it be expressed in the words we say and the way we live this week and every week going forward that we believed a refined salvation causes joy. Heavenly Father, knowing you, knowing your Son, <clears throat> as Savior, absolutely, positively changes everything. And Father, we look forward to the, uh, to the time where our inheritance is kept in heaven for us, uh, that it is indestructible, uh, will not perish, will not corrode, kept perfect by a perfect God. We look forward to that day. But Father, help us as we experience trials and difficulties in conflict with our culture, that we will be equally as joyful for those. Thank you that through us, you can make, you make your word known. That, uh, that you, with the Holy Spirit, your word, the living word, Jesus Christ, and the written word, Scripture, and that you use our testimony to accomplish your will in saving people and making them know that Jesus loves them loved them enough to die for their sins, and that he rose again, giving us a living hope of our own resurrection, where we will spend eternity with you and with our Savior in glory. In Jesus' name, amen.